It makes me look smarter, don't you think? <laughs> Make me look a lot smarter. <laughs> I can't use them all the time, though, because I don't really need them like Pastor Jerry does. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's just pray over the word. That's what we need to do first. Father, we are so grateful, and we are so honored to be able to come into this house tonight and hear your heart for us, to hear your word. I give you praise and thanksgiving, Father, for every heart that is gathered here tonight, for every life that will be touched tonight. I thank you, Father, that the enemy will not be able to steal the seed that is sown in this house tonight. I give you praise and thanksgiving that we are coming up to a new place, to a new awareness of God, to a new sensitivity to the things of God that we hear your voice more clearly, that we experience and encounter your spirit more deeply, that we are greatly affected by you in these last days, Father, that we never turn our heart and never turn our back on you, but we run into you, Father, as children hungry for the hug from a father. We run into you tonight, and we are grateful and thankful that you receive us completely and entirely. In Jesus' name, that no weapon formed against this word will prosper. In the name of Jesus, amen? amen. So, praise the Lord. We're going to talk about restoration again tonight, but we're going to talk about um, restoration of your life. Hallelujah. If it's not broke, don't fix it, right? <laughs> Hallelujah. Acts chapter 3. Let's just read our restoration scriptures. He says in verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So what is happening here? is we see a timeline, if you could. And on this timeline is the place that the prophet spoke of restoration, the time that they were in right then, and the time of the fullness of restoration. So he said, the prophets talked about restoration. You're living in the opportune moment for restoration, and there's coming a day of restoration of all things. And so what he said in the middle of when the, what the prophets prophesied and the restoration of all things was a timeline in the middle where he says, be, repent and be converted that your sins are blotted out. Okay? So the time between the time when the prophets prophesied of it and the activity of it is a time of repentance. So if we, we've seen the prophetic word about what's going to happen and we see the end result of what's going to happen. So we're in the season of continual repentance. Do you understand what I'm talking about on this timeline? Okay. And so we know that it's this restoration that's coming is according to what the prophets have prophesied. Now, if you go and study out restoration in the Old Covenant, you'll see there's restoration of lands for the nation of Israel. You'll see there's a restoration of your soul. There's a restoration of your joy. There's a restoration of your peace. There's a restoration of your health. See, all of these are coming. All of these things, Jesus is going to stay in heaven till all of that happens for you. He's going to wait until all of that happens in the earth. He's waiting for that restoration of all things to be fulfilled. So he's hungering for you to have everything restored in your life as the prophets prophesied. He wants you to have full joy. He wants you to have full peace. He wants you to have full health. He wants you to have families restored, anything the enemy stole. In fact, the word even says that he's going to restore years to you that locusts and canker worm ate. He's going to even give you a restoration of time that those things you regretted to do in the past, he's going to give you a new timetable so you still get it done. Come on. Yeah. Amen? And the Lord is waiting in heaven 
till all of this starts pouring out on the church. So we can't miss it. We can't miss it because he's waiting until we get it. Amen? Now that's good news. That is good news. Amen? Now we have to understand that along this timetable of restoration, we are going to experience opportunities of pieces of that restoration. For instance, um, you know, maybe you need your joy, your peace, your health, your family, your time. You maybe need all of it restored. Well, what's going to happen is he's going to give you uh, a moment in time where there's a kairos moment where your peace is restored. Then he's going to give you another kairos moment. Your health is restored. He's got all these things happening by, by parts and pieces to get us to the process of the full whole thing. Okay? And so we have to understand that sometimes because of the world we live in, the entire world is trying to pull us away from God. The entire world is trying to pull us away from restoration moments. The, the whole world is trying to keep you from the full restoration that God has promised for you. So we have to understand that there's things opposing our restoration. And once in a while, what happens is those things that are pulling against our restoration get a piece of our heart that causes us to draw back. It causes us to draw back, okay? But that's not the intention of the Lord. So what he wants to do is he wants to restore your heart again so you can get back on your quest of full restoration. Do you understand what I'm saying? So restoration isn't just a one-time experience. For a believer, many times it's a daily encounter, depending on what is opposing you. Now, let me say this. Don't find fault because you're in need of personal restoration in your heart for God. Don't even think that because, as I heard it said, much of the church isn't even pressing into God for anything. So if you're pressing into God for something, you're in the top 10%. Yeah. Amen? Amen. Most of the church isn't pressing into God for anything to alter their life. They're just happy going to church on a Sunday. Okay? We are the people that press for more. We are the people that press for more. We're a unique grouping of people in this house. We are pressing for more of God because we believe the promise of restoration is available to us Amen. in every area of life. Amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No place for anything but full restoration. And everything is pulling on us. It's trying to drag us. It's trying to drag us away from God. It's trying to steal our passion. It's trying to take our fervency. It's trying to take our health. It's trying to take our peace. It's trying to take our joy. So what we have to understand is we're not the freaks. We are the valiant. Amen? All right. So, so what we need to do is understand how Jesus personally causes restoration in an individual's life, all right, in an individual's life. And I thought, well, how can you tell if you're in need of restoration? And um, this was a little thing that was given to me. If your spiritual mode of operation is not one that you're comfortable with other people copying. Let me say that again. If your spiritual mode of operation, how you, how you pursue God spiritually, how you press into God, how you draw toward God, if you're not comfortable with the way you press in, as everyone should copy it, you've got a restoration needed. Because for one thing, you know it's short of what it could be. If you don't want anybody imitating it, you know it's short of what it could be or short of what it should be. And the could be, should be is a place of restored. Yeah. 
Do you understand what I mean? All right? And so sometimes we fall back from what we should do. We fall back of what we could do. We fall back of what we ought to do. All that means is you're a candidate for restoration in God. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. So here we go farther. Are you ready? All right. So let's go in our Bibles to Matthew 26. And we're going to see how Jesus does restoration. Because we're going to experience restoration multitudes of times in our life. Amen? Matthew 26, beginning with verse 31. And Jesus says to them, this is, he's meeting with his 12 the last time as a group before the crucifixion. And Jesus says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Ugh. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. This is just a classic response of somebody that wants to serve God, that wants to press through to God, but doesn't understand the opposition that's about to come against them. Okay? He had, Peter had right intentions and he had right heart. I'm going to pursue you, God. I'm going to stay with you, Jesus, with everything I've got. Even with my life, I'm going to stick to you, Jesus. And Jesus warns them, uh, it's not going to happen tonight, dude. Okay? It's not going to happen. But when Jesus said that, Peter becomes more adamant. Yes, I am. I, I'm going to do this. I can do this. I can do this. And so we see here that Peter is warned that he's going to fail, but he's adamant he won't. All right. Have you ever been in that place where God said, if you don't spend time in the word or just do this or just do this, I will, I will, I will, but we don't because we don't realize the opposition that's against us. All right, so let's, let's go over to verse 69 of the same chapter and see what happens. It says, Now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know, do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway... Another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. This is the man that warned him he was going to do this. <laughs> and a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. So right there, when that rooster crowed, Peter knew what he'd done. I messed up. I messed up. I said I wasn't going to do that. I said I wasn't going to mess up. I said I wasn't going to make a mistake. I said I wasn't going to do that again. I said I wasn't ever going to think that way again. I said I wasn't going to respond like that again. You put your thing into it. I said I wasn't going to experience this ever again. And here I am just doing exactly what I said I would never do is what happened. And so G um, Peter weeps bitterly. He weeps bitterly. And he didn't just say, I don't know him, and disappeared. He forcefully said, I do not know that man. Okay? Jesus had warned him. That's what was going to happen. But he goes out and he weeps bitterly because of the guilt that he feels. The guilt. 
I did what I said I would never do. Have you ever been there before? I've done what I said I would never do again. Now, this is significant to remember this. Peter never had another opportunity to talk to Jesus before he was crucified. That was the last encounter he had with the Lord personally. The last encounter he had with the Lord was the time of his failing when Jesus turned and looked at him. That was the last encounter he had. And sometimes we as believers feel like when we make that mistake, that's the last encounter we're ever going to have with the Lord. He's got to be done with me now. It's got to be over. But it wasn't over. The time of restoration was just beginning. Amen? It wasn't over. All right? I want to look at this in another text. I want to go to Luke chapter 22. Now, can you imagine the guilt that Peter was bearing? Because it was not only what he'd done in denying Jesus, but also in the fact that he had made a commitment he wouldn't. He'd made a commitment that he wouldn't do that again, and that's exactly what he did. So the guilt and the weight of that is on him. But if we look in Luke chapter 22, in verse 31, um, this is again the warning that Jesus gave before he experienced the denial. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, or Peter, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and you, when you have returned, to strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. So what we see here is the scripture that Jesus gives him some understanding. He said, the devil is coming, and he's going to try to sift you as wheat. The word sift here literally means to rattle you. The enemy wants to rattle people. But Jesus said something that's really key here. He said, but I've prayed that your faith fail not. Now, this is key to restoration. The first thing you have to understand in restoration is that this. Jesus has prayed for you before you fail for your restoration. Jesus has prayed for your restoration before you even fail. The word says the spirit ever lives to make intercession for you. Okay? The restoration prayer has already been spoken before you even fail. Before you're sick, the prayer of healing has gone forth. Before you lost your joy, the prayer for your joy has already been prayed. Before you lose your peace, the prayer for your peace has already been prayed by the Spirit of God himself. See, so a pathway of restoration has already been made. It's already been paved by the Spirit of God. Your way back to God is already made available. Amen? And so we see here that he's prayed for him that he, his faith would not fail, and he gives him this. And when you return, strengthen the brethren. When you come back, resume your call. When you come back, Go back to what you know you're supposed to do. When you, when, you, when you get ahead of it, when you get on top of it again, return. Do what you're supposed to do. Don't sit under the guilt. You're coming back. Throw it off and do what you know you're supposed to do is right. Amen? Hallelujah. So now let's go and look in John 21. Let's look at the encounter of restoration. Because like I said, Peter never had another encounter with Jesus after the moment of denying him. All right? We see in chapter 21 of John, the first verse, it says, 
After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you also. So they went out, immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. So I want you to understand this, that many times when we fail or make a mistake, because Peter is still living with the guilt of what he did. We're going to see that later on. He's living with the guilt of what he did because he didn't have this one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus to make that right. And so he's living with the guilt. So what does he do? He says, I'm going fishing. And many times when we make a mistake or our need of restoration, we will return to the old thing. We will return to the former thing. We will return back to the thing we're familiar with, the method of operation, the thing we used to do that seemed to work. But the problem here is, is it said, now Peter was a fisherman. He knew how to catch fish, but same thing happens to us that happened to him. That night, they caught nothing. Because when you try to go back to the old thing, when you try to go back to the, other, the old way of operating, when you try to go back to the familiar thing, you find that it's empty. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't satisfy anymore. It's not what you want anymore. It's not working anymore. That, it, that old thing is so not fulfilling any longer because of what you have experienced. All right? So you have to ask here, for Peter, was this whole three and a half ministry, year th ministry thing with Jesus, was it just a fad? You know, like it was something he did for a while, and it was really cool. You should have seen what we did. And they can tell his grandkids later on. Yeah, for three and a half years, we walked with this guy. It was really cool. And miracles happened. And now it's all over, you know. Or was it a thing that he thought, well, that was that season. So now we're in a new season. Well, there always will be new seasons in life. But your next season should not have less of God in it than the former season. Every season should be increased. Now, seasons will change. And you have to find a different method, maybe, of reaching, connecting with God. Time schedules change, jobs change, houses change, all those things change. But there should never be less of God in the next season. Because the word says the path of the righteous gets brighter and brighter until a perfect day, right? All right. So um, we see here that he tried to return to the old way when he was in need of restoration, but it was not fulfilling. It was not fulfilling. All right, so verse 4 then, an interesting thing to think about, that guilt will always drive you backwards. Guilt, when you, guilt will always drive you backwards. And the thing of it is, is the enemy tries to trip you up to get you to fall, and then he condemns you for falling, and it's all because he wants to take you backwards instead of forwards. He does not want you to go forward. Amen? All right, so verse 4. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. It's interesting to me he called them children because some of them were the same age he was. But that word children, if you look it up, refers to an infant or a half-grown. And I was thinking about that. Maybe they were half-grown. They'd gotten Jesus, but they hadn't got the Holy Spirit yet. They were only halfway to being able to fulfill the ministry. All right? And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Now, it's interesting he asked them to do this. Let's switch over to Luke chapter 5, if we can. Hold your place there. We're coming back. But Luke chapter 5, in Luke chapter 5, um, here's the story. When Jesus had borrowed the boat, he borrowed the boat to preach. And in verse 4, 
he'd stopped speaking, he said to Simon or Peter, you know, it's Simon Peter, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. So also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon, and said to Simon, Do not be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So Jesus had done this before. He'd done this before. And many times when you're experiencing an encounter of restoration, Jesus will do something for you he's done for, before for you. He will do something for you that he did before. Now, in Luke's account, and we see this great catch of fish, Simon Peter's response was he fell down and he said, Lord, forgive me for I am a sinful man. Well, why did he say that? It's because Jesus asked him to throw over the nets and he only did one. He could have had a bigger day than he did, but he only threw over one of the nets versus the net. Jesus said, throw out the nets. And Peter said, okay, I'll throw out one. It's a big process to have to clean those things and everything. And he said, I'm, I'm not going to go all that, all that work. We didn't catch anything before. What makes you think we're going to catch anything now? And so he throws out one and he realizes the master can make things happen beyond my ability, my achievement, my education, my information, my knowledge, my experience. And so he fell down and realized I need to initiate a total dependence on him for everything that's going to happen in my life. And so when Jesus meets them in John 21 at the sea, then what happens is he says, throw out the nets. So they throw it out as he says, and they get this uh, massive catch of fish. For lack of a better word, deja vu. You understand what I mean? We've had this happen before. We've had this encounter before. And so now what happens to them? Because they've got this big catch of fish. And so then what happens is the disciple whom Jesus loves says to Peter in verse 7 of John 21, it is the Lord. Well, how did he know it was the Lord? He couldn't tell it was the Lord before that because Jesus repeated something he'd done for them before. He recognized and realized that has to be the Lord. That has to be the Lord because he's the one that can do this. So Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. It doesn't say he saw. Love recognizes God first. The disciple whom Jesus loved recognized him first. So Simon Peter hears that's the Lord, and he puts on his outer garment, for he had removed it, which when they remove the outer garment, it means they're rolling up their sleeves for labor and toil. So Peter had prepared himself for labor and toil, but when he realized it was the Lord, he put that back on. Labor's over. Toil's over. The Lord is here. The Lord is here. The labor and the toil is over. We're going back to the other way of living again. Amen. So he heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment, for he removed it and plunged into the sea. And that right there, that plunging into the sea, is a proof of his hunger and desperation to shake that guilt thing that he had on the inside. He needed some one-on-one -on -one with Jesus to fix this thing. He was hungry. He had an appetite. Fix this thing on the inside of me. All right? The other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Now, it's interesting to me that um, Jesus says to them in verse 10, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Now, we're talking about a restoration. So Jesus is here on the land with bread and fish already cooking, 
And he says, bring some of the fish you've got. Well, he already had fish. And we know Jesus can take just a few fish and feed thousands of people, all right? But the interesting thing is, when we're talking about restoration, is Jesus always has the provision you need, but he is always accepting of what you've tried to do and not rejecting you. He didn't reject them by saying, you don't need those fish, just leave them at the beach because we don't even need those. That would have made them feel like our attempt of what we're trying to do or what you blessed us with doesn't count. He says, no, bring a part of what you got. Come with your heart. Bring what you've got. I'm trying to let you know I accept your efforts, but I've got the provision you really need. I accept what you're attempting to do, but really what you need is just to come here and eat with me. Whether you've got anything or not doesn't matter. Just know that he's never going to reject you. He is always going to accept you. But when it comes to restoration, he's got all you need. He's got all you need. They get to have breakfast, fish and bread. I'm going to try that. <laughs> there isn't too many men that say, yay, breakfast, fish and bread. But maybe it'd be good for us. So Simon Peter drags the net to land. See, he's trying to call him. Obviously, Peter did get onto the shore and run to Jesus. Because Peter's down there, and he's dragging the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. And Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Come on, come up here. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. And Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, nobody's, I don't think many people, they didn't, they didn't talk to him too much. You know what I mean? This is a moment. They didn't talk to him too much there that we have um, any context of. And they said that no one um, dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew. All right. So Peter has got this guilt thing from way back of denying him. So Jesus is going to fix this now. And this is where restoration is going to happen. So he says to Peter in verse 15, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, Jesus asked Peter, because this word love the first time and the word love the second time, Jesus' use of the word love and Peter's use of the word love are two different words in the Greek text. And Jesus says to him, Peter, do you love me? And the word love there is agape, which we know it to mean total commitment to love, total commitment to give, total commitment in everything. And so <clears throat> Jesus says, Peter, do you have this total commitment to me? And Peter responds, says, says you know that I love you. But his word love means like a best friend kind of love. So Jesus said, Peter, do you have total commitment to me? And Peter said, I'm your best bud, Jesus. You know that. <laughs> okay? And that's the response he gets. It's kind of like that bad breakup, you know, let's just be friends. <laughs> you know the difference? All right? So he says to him, you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. The response that Jesus gives is, if you have that kind of friendship, love, whatever it is that you've got going in your heart, he's asking him, feed my lambs. He's asking him, do something for me then. And when you think about administering food to someone, it's a supply that will cause growth. And it's unique because lambs are littles, right? And so Jesus is saying, well, Peter, if you're my best friend, then feed my lambs. Give, them, give people, give my young ones something that they can grow on. He's asking Peter to do something again. All right? And so then after that, Jesus says to him a second time, do you love me? 
And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, Jesus said, do you have this kind of committed love for me? And Peter says, Lord, you know, I'm your closest friend. And what's happening is Jesus is trying to call Peter up out of the guilt. He's trying to reveal to Peter where he is at. Because Peter has made a mistake. And he's, he's in this guilty feeling of this mistake he's made. And Jesus is trying to call him up to this great love. But Peter is going to be um, trepidatious about that because he doesn't want to fail again. If I say, yes, I love you like that, but I do that again, I can't live with myself. He doesn't know if he can come up to that level of love that Jesus is asking of him because he knows the pain of disappointing the master and he doesn't want to disappoint the Lord again is where he's at. So he is cautious with the level that he is exposing his heart to be at. Do you understand what I'm saying there? He's cautious about it because he doesn't want to walk through that guilt again. You know, the last time Jesus said, you know, you're all going to be made to stumble. Peter was bold, strong, and said, not me. And Jesus now is saying, do you love me with everything you've got? And he said, I know where I'm at. I'm so closely knit in friendship with you. But I don't know if I can say I'm there because the last time I tried to put myself out there, I fell on my face. And I don't want to have that experience again. Do you understand what's going on here? And Jesus is trying to call him up. No, do you have that kind of committed love? Do you have that? And this time he says, tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. And so we know that sheep are the more mature, more uh, uh, older ones, right? They're older lambs, basically. But the word sheep here is literally something that's walking forward, meaning it's the growing lambs. Something walking forward. Those in the kingdom that are making progress. And he says to them, tend to them, which means to rule or supervise, to help and lead them. So now, Peter, you've got one commission to not just feed my lambs. I need you to also help the sheep grow right. Help the ones walking forward. Help them, okay? Help those people. And then the third time, Jesus says to Peter, he said, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And this time, um, Jesus uses the same word love that Peter uses. He said, Peter, are we really best buds? And um, Peter responds because he's grieved because he said it to him the third time. He had to ask him something. And what's going on here is Jesus is helping Peter locate his heart, locate his condition. And, G and Peter says to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Same word. You know that I have this friendship, this, this thing for you. And he said, well, then feed my sheep. Meaning, give those ones that are, more, are maturing, give them something to keep growing. Give them something. So he gives them the mandate to feed the lambs, tend the sheep, and feed the sheep. Okay? We see that Jesus asked Peter twice, do you have committed love toward me? And one time, or we have that friendship kind of love. And we see Peter every time, knowing where he's at, all three times he says, you know that I love you. But the last time, Peter came to the end. And, P and Peter's like, Jesus, I don't have to explain anything. You know right where I'm at. You know everything. You know my heart. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. The word Lord is master. It's the authority, the controller. He said, you know all things. You know that I love you, all right? So we see all this, this, this thing going on where Jesus is trying to call Peter up. He's trying to call Peter up, but yet the Lord knows where he's at, 
And what he does is because he's working restoration, he says, okay, I'll meet you there. Just do this for me. Do this for me. So there's three things that I want to take in consideration. When you in your life have made a mistake or you're falling short or you're struggling, there's three things that are what we saw here that were the key to the process of Peter's restoration. The first thing is we have to locate our heart where it's at. We have to locate our heart where it's at. Now, there's another man in Jesus' life that also did a bad boo-boo. His name was Judas. All right? And Judas, we know, it says he led those and he guided those that were going to take Jesus. And we hear Jesus refers to him as a traitor, the betrayer. And Matthew 27, I don't think I gave him this scripture, but in Matthew 27 explains what happened to Judas after he failed. Now we know when Peter failed, it said he went out and wept bitterly. But Judas, when he failed, um, I think it's Matthew 27, Micah, can you get it? Verse 3, I think is where it's at. I might have it written down. I think that's what it is. I can look. Matthew 27. I didn't, want, I didn't want to focus a lot on this, so I don't. Okay, G, Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. Can you go on to the next one? Saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. The difference between Judas and Peter is one was restored. One gave place for restoration in their life. Now, go back to verse 3, if you don't mind. Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. Now, this is the key of locating your heart. Because many times, people get remorseful, but not repentive. They get remorseful, but not repentive. And the difference is remorseful people are sad about the action done. Repentive people are sad about the who that did it. Okay? Because a lot of people are remorseful and they, have, uh, they regret what was done and they regret the result. Judas regretted what he did and a remorseful person will try to undo what they did. They'll try to repair it and fix it. What did he do in verse 4? I sinned, and they said, what's that to us? So verse 5, he threw down the pieces in the sil of silver in the temple. He was trying to undo what he had done. But he never looked at the condition of his heart that caused him to do what he did. He never examined who he was. Instead, he thought about what he'd done. And that's the difference between remorse and repenting, okay? Now, there is no condemnation. The simple truth is we just got to grow bigger in God. That's all it is. We just got to grow and develop more in God. It's, it's a simple thing. And when you find yourself wanting just to change the result... And not wanting to change you, that's a sign there's remorse but no repentance. Let's say that again. When you see that you want to change the result without changing you, that's remorse and no repentance. When you're willing to say, I did this because of what I've been and I want to change who I am, that's repentance. Do you see the difference? All right, all right, because what you do is only a symptom of who you are. If you can change who you are, you will change what you do. If you just change who you are, you will change what you do. Part of the key is believe who God says you are, and you'll change what you do. Amen? But what happens is most people will bring to the Lord what they've done and not who they are. 
They're concerned about their activities and not this thing on the inside of them. And we have to get so that we're willing. Do you remember back in Luke when we looked at when Jesus borrowed Peter's boat and Peter threw out the one net instead of, in fact, let's go back there. Let me see if I can figure out exactly which scripture. Luke 5 again. So let's see here what he said. Verse 8, when Peter recognizes what happened, he says, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man. He didn't say, depart from me for I did the wrong thing. See, what he recognized, the goodness of God caused him to recognize, I need to be changed. It's just not this thing I did that needs to be changed. Okay? And what repentance will do will say, I need to be changed, not just undo what I've done. Do you hear the difference in that? Because one is speaking of the core of the person. Remember, we're going to have multiple things of restoration in our life till we get to the season of full restoration. And this is what's going to take. It's going to take an awareness and awakeness that when we make mistakes, it's not just the wrong thing done. It's there's got to be a change in here so the wrong thing's never done again. All right? And so these times of restoration mean that we are going to come to the place of being the church without spot or blemish, perfect and wholehearted for him. Because we are willing to let him challenge our heart, expose our heart, discern our heart, judge our heart, look over our heart, and we're willing to make any adjustment necessary that it maintains a wholeheartedness for him all the time. Amen? Amen? So it's not about remorse. It's about having a repentive nature that's always willing to say, change me, Lord. Change me, Lord. Because the only way I could do that is if there's something in me that needs changed. All right? And I'm not, please don't make it seem heavy. Like I said, sometimes it's a daily process. All right? All right? The second thing we see after Peter's heart was located through the love questions, that he gave him a commission to do something. And one of the keys of restoration in your life is to move beyond yourself and do something for someone else. Move beyond yourself because restoration, restoration will require you to look beyond you. Because if you only study you, you'll never get into the big picture of God. You are, you're a piece of the puzzle. But God needs you to look beyond you. Because what happens then is when you begin to serve others or do something for someone else, you will forget about yourself and you'll set your heart back on Him, okay? Because until you've learned how to, sometimes you just got to forget about what you did. Sometimes you just got to let it go. And sometimes you got to just let it be erased by the blood of Jesus. And if you don't get out there serving others, you will keep holding on to it. This is a thing we have to understand. Time does not heal. Time does not heal. I have seen both of these things. I have seen someone get instantaneously restored because they repented and they got washed by the blood of Jesus and restoration came. It took no time. And I have also seen people rehearse day after day after day after day after day after day what they've done. And it might have been that they said an offensive word, but after all these days, it's been um, perpetually gotten bigger and bigger till they're guilty of murder because it got bigger and bigger. Time did that. Time did both of them. See, so it's not time that makes a difference. It's what you do in the time that makes the difference. All right? So we see here now that um, we have to move beyond ourselves. 
See, because guilt is always fueled by self-awareness. Guilt is always fueled by self-awareness. You're aware of what you did wrong. 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 Well, it's because you're self-aware. You're not even looking at somebody else, okay? This is about restor personal restoration. Now, we can always see what everybody else does wrong. You know what I'm saying? I'm not preaching to you about that. I'm preaching to you about where your heart is, okay? And so we have to lose sight of ourselves of what we've done wrong, all right? We have to lose that self-awareness mentality because what happens is we either find ourselves in a guilt way that we are going to, um, is fueled by self-awareness that we condemn ourselves or a guilt that leaves us self-awareness that we're trying to justify ourselves. But both of them are fueled by self-awareness, okay? You don't have the right to condemn yourself, and you don't have the right to justify yourself. Jesus is your justifier. Jesus is your judge. You don't have that right. So you might as well just let go of it, all right? And what you have to understand this, that the nature of man is selfish. The nature of man is selfish. In fact, if you can, Micah, did I give you 2 Timothy 3? Go to 2 Timothy 3. Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Next verse. For men will be lovers of themselves. This is a whole list of awful things that people are going to do in the last days. But the first thing, they're going to love themselves. That's selfishness. All right? So you have to understand that selfishness is in the demonic fallen nature of mankind. And we have to resist being selfish. It's not about your bubble. And you enlarge your bubble as big as your family. No, it's got to be, we've got to be farsighted. We can't be nearsighted, all right? We have to break out of a selfish mode. And I understand what happens is when you're in a society um, that is selfish, then what happens is my unselfishness bumps into your selfishness, and then I feel abused. Because you keep gathering to you, and I keep giving, so it seems unfair. But when I was praying about this, the Spirit of the Lord says, I need in the earth a, what did he say? A turn-it-around generation. A turn-it-around generation. Everything decaying, everything falling, he says, I need a turn it around generation of people that are willing to be unselfish regardless of the abuse that they experience. Of people that are unselfish so that their unselfishness will begin to infect other people. Somebody is going to have to do this, and God's looking to the church to do this. All right? That we become unselfish. Because the nature of the world is to be selfish. That we start thinking beyond our family or what's convenient for us or what's easy for us and what we need. And we have to be a people that will break out of that mode. And I understand that being unselfish is a risk. It's a risk. And it comes with the threat of being abused. But if we want full restoration, we have to be willing to step out of our bubble and be unselfish, all right? So first thing is you have to locate your heart. The second thing is you have to move beyond yourself. And the third thing is you have to receive restoration. You have to take it. Now, um, in the Word of God, it uses the word receive all the time for the church. And we have to understand that receiving doesn't mean I'm going to pour water on you and accept it. No, receiving is always done by faith. So it's more like I'm going to set it on the table. You get it. You take it. You know, um, if I was going to receive this glass case, I'm not waiting for this glass case to adjust me emotionally. And then I know I have it. Do you understand what I mean? I'm not waiting till this, uh, this thing fixes a need I have and then I'll know I have it. I'm just going to take it and say it's mine. 
I'm just going to take it and say it's mine. That's the way it is with restoration if you've made a mistake. You have to say, I've repented of this. It's mine. I'm restored now. Because otherwise, your emotions will keep you in a mode that will not allow you to step forward in God. You have to take it whether you feel like it or not. You just have to say, it is mine. I am restored now to the Lord. Everything that I have ever lost, every passion, every drive, every desire is now falling away. I have restoration and I have to take it. I can't wait till I feel differently about it. I just have to take it. All right. And the church has a hard time accepting gifts from God. And we have to learn how to, how to get things from God without payments. We have to learn to receive gifts from God without making payments. Well, if I do this and do this and do this and do this, then it's probably going to work. Now, that's not the way God's love works. God's love says it's here, it's offered, just take whatever you want. And the beautiful thing is he's never going to run out. He's never going to run out. Just take it all. Take your health. Take your joy. Take your peace. And all these things are coming up against you. doesn't matter. Take what you want. Take what you need. Everything is available. Just take it. And don't sell yourself short. You know, you didn't have to pay for it. Jesus did, and he paid everything that could possibly be paid. So all these gifts are real expensive, but they're free to you. Amen? So just take it. You have to learn that it's not you that qualifies yourself for restoration. You just got to take it. All right? Hallelujah. And I'm going to close with this statement. All of your life, your whole of your life, let me get this so I say it right. The quality of your life is entirely dependent on two things. The whole quality of your life is dependent on two things. Number one, how you submit to God. And God says restoration is available, then take it. If God says health is available, take it. If God says pray 15 minutes in the morning, then do it. If God says go to church, then do it. Because the quality of your life is dependent on how you submit to God and how you resist the devil. Those two things determine your entire quality of life in the earth. Your entire quality of life in the earth is dependent on how you submit to God and how you resist the enemy. Everything, and you can look at it. There's people that are complain, um, uh, saying that they're submitted to God, submitted to God, submitted to God, but everything that happens in their life, trouble, tragedy, crisis, or blessing, they say it's God. There's no resistance to the devil. There's no resistance to the devil, okay? So their life quality isn't for the restoration of all things. And then there's people that are resisting the devil day and night, day and night, day and night, and they've worn themselves out casting devils out of doorknobs and doing all kinds of weird, freaky things, and they're exhausted, and they've got sour faces, and they've got no joy because all they've done is resisted the devil, and they've never submitted themselves just to God. And you want to find yourself as a believer totally submitted to God and everything he requests of you, everything he offers you, and you want to resist the devil with every cell of your being. You want to oppose him, resist him, and not let him have any place because those two things will determine the quality of life you've got. Those two things will determine what kind of life you'll live, how you submit to God and how you resist the devil. Because God wants us to get all the way to the restoration of all things. Everything. Everything. You lost time, it's coming back. Lost your health, it's coming back. Lost your joy, it's coming back. Lost your peace, it's coming back. Submit to God, resist the devil, and you got it. Amen? Hallelujah. Did you get something tonight? Hallelujah. Why don't you stand to your feet? Hallelujah. Jerry, do you have anything you want to add? Okay. Hallelujah. Father, we are so grateful tonight that you always restore us, that you always have a way for us to get back to you, Father. You always have a way. We never go too far. We never go too deep. 
We never go down too far that you can't reach us and give us a hand up for restoration. We thank you, Father, that restoration is always available as long as we won't quit, as long as we don't give up. Restoration is always available, no matter how deep or dark a trench we've been in. Restoration is available, that you can restore us to your heart completely and entirely. And we give you praise and thanksgiving, Father, for the promise that there is a restoration of all things in our future. And we thank you and we praise you for it. Now, I speak a blessing over these hearers that this word will not return void, that it will not be robbed, stolen, or taken out of their heart. But they are able to process it. They are able to put it to action and put it to use that they produce a hundredfold return on everything they've heard, that it multiplies in their heart, that the word of restoration, the revelation of restoration be increased and enlarged in their life. And I give you praise and thanksgiving for it. In Jesus' name, we seal it by the blood. In, in the name of Jesus, amen? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So turn to your neighbor and say... Thank you for joining us for this message. We'd like to take this opportunity to encourage those listening from anywhere in Central Oregon to join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., and Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. for our regular services. We understand that many do not have a home church, and we can't emphasize enough the importance of connecting with a church family. We'd be honored to meet you and spend time with you praising God.